Chapter Twenty Five, Part Nine of Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Mackenzie. Volume Three of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Five, Louis the Eleventh, fourteen sixty one to fourteen eighty three, Part Nine all the efforts of louis the eleventh his winning speeches and his ruinous deeds did not succeed in averting the serious check he dreaded on the eighteenth of august fourteen seventy seven seven months after the battle of nancy and the death of charles the rash archduke maximilian son of the emperor frederick the third arrived at ghent to wed mary of burgundy the moment he caught sight of his betrothed say the flemish chroniclers they both bent down to the ground and turned as pale as death a sign of mutual love according to some an omen of unhappiness according to others next day august the nineteenth the marriage was celebrated with great simplicity in the chapel of the hotel de ville and maximilian swore to respect the privileges of ghent a few days afterwards he renewed the same oath at bruges in the midst of decorations bearing the modest device most glorious prince defend us lest we perish in latin gloriosissime princeps defende nos ne periamus not only did louis the eleventh thus fail in his first wise design of incorporating with france by means of a marriage between his son the dauphin and princess mary the heritage of the dukes of burgundy but he suffered the heiress and a great part of the heritage to pass into the hands of the son of the german emperor and thereby he paved the way for that determined rivalry between the houses of france and austria which was a source of so many dangers and woes to both states during three centuries it is said that in seventeen forty five when louis the fifteenth after the battle of fontenoy entered bruges cathedral he remarked as he gazed on the tombs of the austro-burgundian princes there is the origin of all our wars in vain when the marriage of maximilian and mary was completed did louis the eleventh attempt to struggle against his new and dangerous neighbour his campaigns in the flemish provinces in fourteen seventy eight and fourteen seventy nine had no great result he lost on the seventh of august fourteen seventy nine the battle of guinegat between saint omer and terroine and before long tired of war which was not his favourite theatre for the display of his abilities he ended by concluding with maximilian a truce at first and then a peace which in spite of some conditionals favourable to france left the principal and the fatal consequences of the austro-burgundian marriage to take full effect this event marked the stoppage of that great national policy which had prevailed during the first part of louis the eleventh's reign joan of arc and charles the seventh had driven the english from france and for sixteen years louis the eleventh had by fighting and gradually destroying the great vassals who made alliance with them prevented them from regaining a footing there that was work as salutary as it was glorious for the nation and the french kingship at the death of charles the rash the work was accomplished louis the eleventh was the only power left in france without any great peril from without and without any great rival within but he then fell under the sway of mistaken ideas and a vicious spirit the infinite resources of his mind the agreeableness of his conversation his perseverance combined with the pliancy of his will 
the services he was rendering france the successes he in the long run frequently obtained and his ready apparent resignation under his reverses for a while made up for or palliated his faults his falsehoods his perfidies his iniquities but when evil is predominant at the bottom of a man's soul he cannot do without youth and success he cannot make head against age and decay reverse of fortune and the approach of death and so louis the eleventh when old in years master power still though beaten in his last game of policy appeared to all as he really was and as he had been predisciplined to be by only such eminent observers as Camine, that is, a crooked, swindling, utterly selfish, vindictive, cruel man. Not only did he hunt down implacably the men who, after having served him, had betrayed or deserted him, he revelled in the vengeance he took and the sufferings he inflicted on them. He had raised to the highest rank both in state and church the son of a cobbler, or, according to others, of a tailor, one John de Balou, born in 1421 at the market-town of Angles in Poitou. After having chosen him, as an intelligent and a clever young priest, for his secretary and almoner, Louis made him successively clerical councillor in the Parliament of Paris, then Bishop of Evreux, and afterwards Cardinal, and he employed him in his most private affairs it was a hobby of his thus to make the fortunes of men born in the lowest stations hoping that since they would owe everything to him they would never depend on any but him it is scarcely credible that so keen and contemptuous a judge of human nature could have reckoned on dependence as a pledge of fidelity and in this case louis was at any rate mistaken Ballou was a traitor to him, and, in 1468, at the very time of the incident at Peronne, he was secretly in the service of Duke Charles of Burgundy, and betrayed to him the interests and secrets of his master and benefactor. In 1469, Louis obtained material proof of the treachery, and he immediately had Ballou arrested and put on his trial. The cardinal confessed everything, asking only to see the king louis gave him an interview on the way from amboise to notre dame de clary and they were observed it is said conversing for two hours as they walked together on the road the trial and condemnation of a cardinal by a civil tribunal was a serious business with the court of rome the king sent commissioners to pope paul the second the pope complained of the procedure but amicably and without persistence the cardinal was in prison at loches and louis resolved to leave him there for ever without any more fuss but at the same time that out of regard for the dignity of cardinal which he had himself requested of the pope for the culprit he dispensed with the legal condemnation to capital punishment he was bent upon satisfying his vengeance and upon making balou suffer in person for his crime he therefore had him confined in a cage eight feet broad says comines and only one foot higher than a man's stature covered with iron plates outside and inside and fitted with terrible bars there is still to be seen in loche castle under the name of the Ballou cage that instrument of prison torture which the cardinal it is said himself invented in it he passed eleven years and it was not until fourteen eighty that he was let out at the solicitation of pope sixtus the fourth to whom louis the eleventh being old and ill thought he could not possibly refuse this favour 
He remembered, perhaps, at that time how, that sixteen years before, in writing to his lieutenant-general in Poitou to hand over to Belou, Bishop of Evreux, the property of a certain abbey, he said, "'He is a devilish good bishop just now. I know not what he will be hereafter.' He was still more pitiless towards a man more formidable and less subordinate, both in character and origin, than Cardinal Balou. Louis of Luxembourg, Count of Saint-Paul, had been from his youth up engaged in the wars and intrigues of the sovereigns and great feudal lords of Western Europe, France, England, Germany, Burgundy, Brittany, and Lorraine. From 1433 to 1475, he served and betrayed them all in turn, seeking and obtaining favours, incurring and braving rancour, at one time on one side and at another time on another, acting as constable of France and as diplomatic agent for the Duke of Burgundy, raising troops and taking towns for Louis XI, for Charles the Rash, for Edward IV, for the German Emperor, and trying nearly always to keep for himself what he had taken on another's account. The truth is that he was constantly occupied with the idea of making for himself an independent dominion and becoming a great sovereign. He was, says Duclos, powerful from his possessions, a great captain, more ambitious than politic, and, from his ingratitude and his perfidies, worthy of his tragic end. His various patrons grew tired at last of being incessantly taken up with, and then abandoned, served, and then betrayed, and they mutually interchanged proofs of the desertions and treasons to which they had been victims. In 1475, Louis of Luxembourg saw a storm threatening, and he made application for a safe conduct to Charles the Rash, who had been the friend of his youth. "'Tell him,' replied Charles to the messenger, "'that he has forfeited his paper and his hope as well,' and he gave orders to detain him. As soon as Louis XI knew whither the constable had retired, he demanded of the Duke of Burgundy to give him up, as had been agreed between them. "'I have need,' said he, for my heavy business of a head like his. And he added with a ghastly smile, It is only the head I want. The body may stay where it is. On the 24th of November, 1475, the constable was, accordingly, given up to the king, and on the 27th was brought to Paris. His trial, begun forthwith, was soon over. He himself acknowledged the greater part of what was imputed to him, and on the 19th of December he was brought up from the Bastille before the Parliament. "'My lord of Saint-Paul,' said the Chancellor to him, "'you have always passed for being the firmest lord in the realm. You must not belie yourself to-day, when you have more need than ever of firmness and courage.' And he read to him the decree which sentenced him to lose his head that very day on the Place de Grève. "'That is a mighty hard sentence,' said the constable. "'I pray God that I may see him to-day.' And he underwent execution with serene and pious firmness. He was of an epoch where the most criminal enterprises did not always preclude piety. Louis XI did not look after the constable's accomplices. "'He flew at the heads,' says Duclos, "'and was set on making great examples. He was convinced that noble blood, when it is guilty,' should be shed rather than common blood. Nevertheless, there was considered to be something indecent in the session by the king to the Duke of Burgundy of the constable's possessions. It seemed like the price of the blood of an unhappy man who, being rightfully sacrificed only to justice and public tranquillity, appeared to be so to vengeance, ambition, and avarice. 
In August 1477, the Battle of Nancy had been fought, Charles the Rash had been killed, and the line of the Dukes of Burgundy had been extinguished. Louis XI remained master of the battlefield on which the great risks and great scenes of his life had been passed through. It seemed as if he ought to fear nothing now, and that the day for clemency had come. But such was not the king's opinion. Two cruel passions, suspicion and vengeance, had taken possession of his soul. He remained convinced, not without reason, that nearly all the great feudal lords who had been his foes were continuing to conspire against him, and that he ought not, on his side, ever to cease from striving against them. The trial of the constable, Saint-Paul, had confirmed all his suspicions. He had discovered thereby traces and almost proofs of a design for a long time past conceived and pursued by the constable and his associates, the design of seizing the king, keeping him prisoner, and setting his son, the Dauphin, on the throne, with a regency composed of a council of lords. Amongst the declared or presumed adherents of this project, the king had found James d'Armagnac, Duke of Nemours, the companion and friend of his youth. For his father, the Count of Pardiac, had been governor to Louis, at that time Dauphin. Louis, on becoming king, had loaded James d'Armagnac with favours, had raised his countship of Nemours to a douchey peerage of France, had married him to Louise of Anjou, daughter of the Count of Maine and niece of King René. The new Duke of Nemours entered, nevertheless, into the League of Common Weal against the king. Having been included, in 1465, with the other chiefs of the League in the Treaty of Conflans, and reconciled with the king, the Duke of Nemours made oath to him, in the Saint-Chapelle, to always be to him a good, faithful, and loyal subject, and thereby obtained the governorship of Paris in Ile-de-France. But, in 1469, he took part in the revolt of his cousin, Count Jean d'Armagnac, who was supposed to be in communication with the English, and, having been vanquished by the Count de Damartin, he had need of a fresh pardon from the king, which he obtained on renouncing the privileges of a peerage if he should offend again. He then withdrew within his own domains, and there lived in tranquillity and popularity, but, still keeping up secret relations with his old associates, especially with the Duke of Burgundy and the Constable of Saint-Paul. In 1476, during the Duke of Burgundy's first campaign against the Swiss, the more or less active participation of the Duke of Nemours with the king's enemies appeared to Louis so grave that he gave orders to his son-in-law, Peter of Bourbon, Sire de Beaujeu, to go and besiege him in his castle of Carlat in Auvergne. The Duke of Nemours was taken prisoner there, and carried off to Vienne in Dauphiny, where the king then happened to be. In spite of the prisoner's entreaties, Louis absolutely refused to see him, and had him confined in the tower of Pierre Rancise. The Duke of Nemours was so disquieted at his position in the king's wrath, that his wife, Louise of Anjou, who was in her confinement at Carlat, had a fit of terror and died there and he himself, shut up at Pierre Rancis in a dark and damp dungeon, found his hair turn white in a few days. He was not mistaken about the gravity of the danger. Louis was both alarmed at these incessantly renewed conspiracies of the great lords, and vexed at the futilities of his pardons. He was determined to intimidate his enemies by a grand example, and avenge his kingly self-respect by bringing his power home to the ingrates who made no account of his indulgence. 
he ordered that the duke of Lemours should be removed from pierre Ancise to paris and put in the bastille where he arrived on the fourth of august fourteen seventy six and that commissioners should set about his trial the king complained of the gentleness with which the prisoner had been treated on arrival and wrote to one of the commissioners it seems to me that you have but one thing to do that is to find out what guarantees the duke of nemours had given the constable of being at one with him in making the duke of burgundy regent putting me to death seizing my lord the dauphin and taking the authority and government of the realm he must be made to speak clearly on this point and must get hell be put to the torture in good earnest i am not pleased at what you tell me as to the irons having been taken off his legs as to his being let out from his cage and as to his being taken to the mass to which the women go whatever the chancellor or others may say take care that he budge not from his cage that he be never let out save to give him hell torture him and that he suffer hell torture in his own chamber the duke of nemours protested against the choice of commissioners and claimed as a peer of the realm his right to be tried by the parliament when put to the torture he ended by saying i wish to conceal nothing from the king i will tell him the truth as to all i know my most dread and sovereign lord he himself wrote to louis i have been so misdoing towards you and towards god that i quite see that i am undone unless your grace and pity be extended to me the which accordingly most humbly and in great bitterness and contrition of heart i do beseech you to bestow upon me liberally and he put the simple signature poor james he confessed that he had been cognizant of the constable's designs but he added that whilst thanking him for the kind offers made to himself and whilst testifying his desire that the lords might at last get their guarantees he had declared what great obligations and great oaths he was under to the king against the which he would not go he moreover had told the constable he had no money at the moment to dispose of no relative to whom he was inclined to trust himself or whom he could exert himself to win over not even monsieur d'albret his cousin in such confessions there was enough to stop upright and fair judges from the infliction of capital punishment but not enough to reassure and move the heart of louis the eleventh on the chancellor's representations he consented to have the business sent before the parliament but the peers of the realm were not invited to it the king summoned the parliament to noyon to be nearer his own residence and he ordered that the trial should be brought to a conclusion in that town and that the original commissioners who had commenced proceedings as well as thirteen other magistrates and officers of the king denoted by their posts should sit with the lords of the parliament and deliberate with them in spite of so many arbitrary precautions and violations of justice the will of louis the eleventh met even in a parliament thus distorted with some resistance three of the commissioners added to the court abstained from taking any part in the proceedings three of the councillors pronounced against the penalty of death and the king's own son-in-law sire de beaujeu who presided confined himself to collecting the votes without delivering an opinion and to announcing the decision it was to the effect that james d'armagnac duke of nemours was guilty of high treason and as such deprived of all honours dignities and prerogatives and sentenced to be beheaded and executed according to justice furthermore the court declared all his possessions confiscated and lapsed to the king 
The sentence, determined upon at Noyon on the 10th of July, 1477, was made known to the Duke of Nemours on the 4th of August in the Bastille, and carried out the same day in front of the market-place. A disgusting detail, reproduced by several modern writers, has almost been received into history. Louis XI, it is said, ordered the children of the Duke of Nemours to be placed under the scaffold and be sprinkled with their father's blood. None of his contemporaries, even the most hostile to Louis XI, and even amongst those who, at the States-General held in 1484, one of them after his death, raised their voices against the trial of the Duke of Nemours and in favour of his children, has made any mention of this pretended atrocity. Amongst the men who have reigned and governed ably, Louis XI is one of those who could be most justly taxed with cruel indifference, when cruelty might be useful to him but the more ground there is for severe judgment upon the chieftains of nations, the stronger is the interdict against overstepping the limit justified and authorised by facts. The same rule of historical equity makes it incumbent upon us to remark that, in spite of his feelings of suspicion and revenge, Louis XI could perfectly well appreciate the men of honour in whom he was able to have confidence, and would actually confide in them even contrary to ordinary probabilities he numbered amongst his most distinguished servants three men who had begun by serving his enemies and whom he conquered so to speak by his penetration and his firm mental grasp of policy the first was philip of chaban count de damartin an able and faithful military leader under charles the seventh so suspected by louis the eleventh at his accession that when weary of living in apprehension and retirement he came in fourteen sixty three and presented himself to the king who was on his way to bordeaux ask you justice or mercy demanded louis justice sir was the answer very well then replied the king i banish you for ever from the kingdom and he issued an order to that effect at the same time giving damartin a large sum to supply the wants of exile it is credible that louis already knew the worth of the man and wished in this way to render the reconciliation more easy three years afterwards in fourteen sixty six he restored to Damartin his possessions, together with express marks of royal favour, and, twelve years later, in 1478, in spite of certain gusts of doubt and disquietude which had passed across his mind as to Damartin, under circumstances critical for both of them, the king wrote to him, Sir Grand Master, I have received your letters, and I do assure you, by the faith of my body, that I am right joyous that you provided so well for your affair at Quesnoy, for one would have said that you and the rest of the old ones were no longer any good in an affair of war, and we and the rest of the young ones would have gotten the honour for ourselves. Search, I pray you, to the very root the case of those who would have betrayed us, and punish them so well that they shall never do you harm. I have always told you that you have no need to ask me for leave to go and do your business, for I am sure that you would not abandon mine without having provided for everything. Wherefore, I put myself in your hands, and you can go away without leave. All goes well, and I am much better pleased at your holding your own so well than if you had risked a loss of two to one, and so farewell. In 1465, another man of war, Odedeidi, lord of Lescan and Warn, had commanded at Montlhery the troops of the Dukes of Berry and Brittany against Louis the Eleventh, and in 1469 the king, who had found means of making his acquaintance, and who was wiser, says Comines, in the conduct of such treaties than any other prince of his time, 
resolved to employ him in his difficult relations with his brother Charles, then Duke of Guienne, promising him that he and his servants, and he especially, should profit thereby. Three years afterwards, in 1472, Louis made Lescun Count of Comminges, wherein he showed good judgment, adds Comines, saying that no peril would come of putting in his hands that which he did put, for never during those past dissensions had the said Lescun a mind to have any communication with the English, or to consent that the places of Normandy should be handed over to them. And to the end of his life, Louis XI kept up the confidence which Lescun had inspired by his judicious fidelity in the case of this great question. There is no need to make any addition to the name of Philippe de Comines, the most precious of the politic conquests made by Louis in the matter of eminent counsellors, to whom he remained as faithful as they were themselves faithful and useful to him. The memoirs of Comines are the most striking proof of the rare and unfettered political intellect placed by the future historian at the king's service, and of the estimation in which the king had wit enough to hold it. End of chapter 25, part 9